Where did my clerk go? All right. Well, we are back on our topic of kingdom. And just to remind us uh, again of what the kingdom is all about. All right, Ryan, it was working fine. That's the way it goes. Let me try and reset this. There it is. Thank you. The kingdom. The kingdom of God is the spiritual realm in which Jesus Christ rules and reigns over the hearts and the lives of those who have accepted him as Lord and Savior. We recently pivoted from, we were talking about thy kingdom come and talking about what is the kingdom of God and what isn't it. And we went down a lot of roads with that. And we recently pivoted from thy kingdom come to kingdom living and what it means to live in the kingdom. Last time we spoke on this subject, I talked about the setting in which Jesus introduced kingdom living um, on the Sermon on the Mount series that he gave. Now, as we've said before, the Sermon on the Mount has been described as the manifesto of the King, the manifesto of Jesus Christ. It just kind of, he has boiled a lot of things down into this message. Uh, That day on the hillside, Jesus began to tell anyone and everyone, if you desire to be in the kingdom, if you desire to be a citizen within the kingdom, if you desire to be a subject of the kingdom, I'm about ready to tell you what it means and how you need to live. There are 111 verses in chapters 5 through 7. That's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like. This, this, is, ought, this is how you ought to be behaving. These are the attitudes in which you should have. Now go and do it. So, a question I have for you, and... and question you may have asked before, how do you know if you're really living in the kingdom? How do you know if there's kingdom living going on in your life? Is there instant obedience to all the scriptures in the word of God? Not necessarily so. But know this, and as I've previously said, previously said, there will be evidence of change in our life, if we indeed have been brought into the kingdom. Say amen to that. There will be evidence of change when we have come into the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.17, popular verse, If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed, all things have become new. Jesus said in John 14.23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. See, before I get into the very first point today of what we're going to be talking about for several weeks now, there's, there's some things that I've got to lay out. I've got to do some more groundwork here. Things that I just could not get past. There needs to be a change in our hearts and in our lives. What Jesus is telling us is that once we ask Him into our hearts and we give Him permission to take up residence, our, over time, our attitudes will change. Somebody say amen to that. 
Over time, our desires will change. Over time, our ambitions will change. How we act, how we react within the relationships of our lives will change, church. In some areas, this change is immediate. But there are some areas to where it takes some time. As God reveals things throughout our life, it takes some time. But let me say this, that we should never stop changing. We should never stop growing. As long as there is breath in our lungs, we should never stop being transformed to the image of Jesus Christ. There is no one here who has arrived. Not you and not me. If your walk and if my walk with the Lord today is the same as what it was when we first got saved, or if it's the same as what it was 10, 20 years ago, something's wrong. Right? Something's wrong because Jesus is constantly, as I've said before, messing things up. He's constantly messing with us in order to get us to look more and more like Himself. This change, folks, is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. I'm not sure if you've looked at it like that before, but I believe you'll see that. There is, uh, in chapter 5 of Matthew, there is an interesting verse that I want to read that has really can be very puzzling. Jesus said this right here. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever read that in your life and thought, man, what on earth is he talking about there? That's a hard verse to kind of just latch on to. What is he talking about? Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, to the average person that day, this was a startling statement. And really, it was an impossible task. You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the top dogs of that day, church. Um, they knew the Mosaic law like the back of their hand. They knew all of the righteous deeds that had to be done. Matter of fact, um, I've, I've heard and I've learned and I've read that if as a child you can desire to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a religious leader and you can decide to uh, train in the way of the Pharisees, they knew their stuff. As a child, you were required to not just memorize a verse, you had to memorize entire books of the law. Can you imagine that? First five books of the law, the Torah, Mosaic Law, you had to memorize books, entire books. You see, the Pharisees knew. They knew about it. No one was more knowledgeable, no one was more righteous than they were, but Jesus was not impressed. As a matter of fact, Jesus called them a brood of vipers. <laughs> and that day they were looked up to, but Jesus 
said you're whitewashed sepulchers. People would follow the robes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the religious leaders, but Jesus said that your father is the devil. He had some very strong words for them. You see, what Jesus was trying to teach them and what he's trying to teach us is that gaining favor with God will not come through human efforts. It will not come through self-righteous deeds. You see, what the Pharisees had done without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they took the law of Moses and they expanded it. And they created 613 laws. 613 commands, 365 of which were negative and 248 were positive. It's interesting. Every day, kind of like a devotional, you would turn to a Pharisaic law and you would find something negative to do for every day of the year or not to do for every day of the year. And by the time that Jesus came, the religious leaders had created a cold and a heartless and an arrogant brand of righteousness. On a separate incident, a Pharisee who just so happened to be a lawyer asked Jesus this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You know what Jesus said. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, Jesus took their 613 laws and he pushed them off to the side. And he brought it all back to where it really is about anyways. He brought it all back to a matter of the heart. You see, church has always been about the heart. Kingdom living is about the heart. Kingdom living is not about doing, but it's about being. Right? Kingdom living is not about doing, it's about being. And your being can only be changed by the King. Jesus was saying that the only way, if you've ever read that verse and thought, what is he really trying to say? What Jesus was trying to say is that the only way that one's righteousness will exceed that of the human scribes and the Pharisees, if this, if this one's righteousness is not human at all, but divine. Jesus was saying there's no way that you can gain favor with God if you're trying to do it yourself, if you're trying to live up to human standards. You see, this is what is behind Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Don't misunderstand Jesus' words that day in the hillside. We should not look at what He said and, and say, okay, now I have to turn the other cheek. Now I have no choice. I have to love my enemies. I have to pray for those who persecute me. I have no choice but to obey the golden rule. You see, the Sermon on the Mount should not be looked upon as some laundry list of things to do. We are not accepted by God By anything that we do, we are accepted because a perfect Savior 
died a bloody death in our place and who rose again in victory. That's how you and I are accepted by God. Yes, we turn the other cheek. Yes, we pray for our enemies. Yes, we pray for those who persecute us. Yes, we follow the golden rule because we have been accepted by Jesus Christ. And because our hearts long to please Him. True righteousness is our total, unashamed, uninhibited reliance on God. What Jesus is demanding is more right, is not more righteous deeds by human efforts, but more righteous hearts, which can only come from divine grace. Let me read that again. I don't think you caught that. True righteousness is our total, unashamed, uninhibited reliance on God. What Jesus is demanding is not more righteous deeds by human efforts, but more righteous hearts which can only come from divine grace. This is the entire precedent behind the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5 opens with, if you want to turn there, you can, but it's just going to be one verse we're going to dive into from there. Chapter 5, Jesus opens up with what is called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Notice it does not say the do attitudes, but the be attitudes. Jesus is about to tell us what our attitudes should be. And what he's getting ready to say is he's going to take the world's values, the, the values of the society, and he's getting ready to just turn it upside down. Right off the bat, Jesus is telling us, and he's telling you, and he's telling them, what is the prerequisite to being a citizen in his kingdom? Let's read the first one today, Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever asked yourself, what is he talking about there? What does he mean, the poor in spirit? When we, refer, when we refer to someone as being blessed, we typically don't use the word poor, do we? <laughs> That's not really the first word that comes to mind when we talk about someone who is blessed. So what did Jesus mean when he used these words? There are two Greek words to translate the word poor. The first one is penes. Penes, that's a word that describes someone who does not have much in this life. It's someone who needs to work with their hands. They're, they're not rich, but they're not destitute either. That's the first Greek word that we see used. But this is not the word that is translated in Matthew. It's not the word that Jesus used. He used the word Potochos. Potochos. This means, this describes someone who does not have anything. It describes absolute poverty. Now we could just camp out there for a little bit and we will and just think about that, folks. It describes those who are literally forced to their knees in order to beg because they literally have 
nothing. It describes a wretched, miserable, and hopeless man because he has nothing at all. What does that mean for us? Jesus said, if you don't have this kind of a spirit, you cannot come into the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is not yours. Jesus was describing one whose spirit in and of itself has absolutely nothing to give. And it's really the attitude in which someone needs to have in order to come to Jesus Christ. It's really the attitude that we have when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. One cannot accept Christ without first realizing that they are indeed a sinner. Right? That's it. By acknowledging how absolutely poor and wretched they are. You and I probably have known many people who even today do not see this. They do not see themselves as a sinner. People will often say, I know that I'm not perfect, but look at all the good things that I do. It's not the do attitudes, it's the be attitudes. They look at all the things that they do and they begin to justify and they begin to make up their own religion. This is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did, church. There is no blessing in this attitude. As long as one holds on to this prideful attitude, salvation is far away. Listen, folks, you and I can never be good enough. We can never do enough good deeds to outweigh the bad. I thought about this this morning, probably a weird illustration, but all pastors are weird, so here we go. Um, I don't know how many of you have scales at home. I have my own personal scales that I like. I like. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of donuts, Mandy, and all that. Now, you have scales as well, but... um, you know, I like the scales because I'm used to my scales. Now, all scales might be off by a pound or two here and there or whatever. But what do you think would happen if the next time I went to the doctor, and what do they do when you go to the doctor? Yeah, they, how tall are you and how much do you weigh? And what do you think would happen if I walked through the door and carried my own scales? Say, I don't want to use your scales. I want to use my scales. They look at me like I have three heads. We will not be able to do that when we stand before Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of what we think is right. God has His own scales, His own righteousness. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. And it's only when a sinner realizes how poor they are in spirit, that they cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. It's only then that salvation is near. Look, you know what I'm talking about. You have relatives, perhaps. Perhaps you work with people. Maybe you have a neighbor. They don't think they're all that bad. Those are some of the toughest people to reach. Who, life is going well, they have a good job making good money, 
living life. Yeah, they have problems here and there, but, but they've got it covered. Oh, I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm, I'm sure that when I stand before God, if there is a God, then he'll see that my good deeds far outweigh my bad. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Salvation came to this man. We talked to him not long ago. John Newton. When he realized how miserable, how worthless, how wretched he was. And he even put that into his song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Have you seen yourself before Christ came Have you seen yourself as a wretch? (laughs) Not an encouraging message that you want to hear on a Sunday morning, but Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're not saved, it should humble you as you realize that you have nothing to give but your heart. The Sermon on the Mount, as we will see in the coming weeks, will bring you to a Savior who died for you on the cross. But this first beatitude is not just for the unsaved. It's not just for those who don't know Jesus Christ. Not only is it the attitude that you and I must have when we come into the kingdom, it also describes the attitude that one must have in order to remain a citizen. Didn't think I'd get too many amens on that. It's the attitude that we need to have, church, in order to remain a citizen. Once we enter the kingdom, two things begin to take place. Whenever I studied this this week, I didn't like this one. But it's true. We will find that we begin to detach ourselves from the things of this world. I don't think I get too many amens on that either. We will find that we begin to detach ourselves from the things of this world because we know that things, we find out that things do not bring peace. Things do not bring serenity of soul. Things do not bring peace of heart, soul, and mind. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't believe God wants us to just live in poverty and live in the slums and have nothing. That's not what I believe this passage is talking about. But what it does mean is that we do not live for the same things that this world lives for. Somebody say amen to that. That is a hard thing, church. Because America is a blessed country. And the North American church is a tough place to minister because do we not have it all? We have it all. There's a song that I used to sing with mom and dad. I lost it all to find everything. I died a pauper but to be born a king. When I learned how to lose, I found out how to win. Oh, I lost it all to find everything. You see what begins to happen. 
You no longer find joy in the things of the world. Oh, we live in the world, and yes, there can be some enjoyment and pleasures in the world. That's, that's fine. We haven't sang this song in a while, but I was thinking about this morning, I was praying. Take this whole world, just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. More of you, more of you. I have what I need, but more of you. Of things I've had my fill, and yet I hunger still. Empty and fed, Lord, hear my prayer for more of you. find that things of the world just don't satisfy. So we find that we begin to detach ourselves. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we live and we're, we're hermits. And there are times I want to be. <laughs> there are times, right, that we want to just be a hermit. We just want to go off on our, by ourselves, go find a mountain, just, uh, just, just go, boy, this is a blast from the past, go live like Grizzly Adams. How many of you remember Grizzly Adams from the years ago? <laughs> I'd love to see one of those shows again. Just get away from it all. Just detach yourself from the world. No, Jesus said, be in the world, but not of the world. How else are we going to save a lost and a dying world? So that's the first thing that detach ourselves from the things of the world. But as we do that, we'll become more and more attached to him. More and more attached to him. And here's the crux, I think, of the message that I'm trying to get across this morning. I'm probably doing a very inadequate job. As we detach ourselves from worldly things, we'll become completely attached to God as we realize that we are nothing without Him. That's it. We're nothing without Him. And I think this is what this first beatitude is trying to say, that without Jesus, we are absolutely nothing. The Sermon on the Mount pertains to those who have realized the world means nothing. But God means everything. A fear for those all around our world who might be coming into churches week after week, singing the songs, hearing the messages, put money in, it, money in the offering plate. They even be involved in the activities of the church, but they do not display an utter and complete dependency upon God. The Bibles are at home just collecting dust. Many live arrogant lives and assume that their minds are so much like God that they don't need His involvement in their lives. Listen, anyone who does not sense their utter helplessness and their utter dependence on God for everyone who, for everything, who lives nominal Christian lives, who do not see their complacency as a problem, they truly have a poor spirit, but it's not the kind of spirit that God's going to bless. 
God got a hold of me this morning because I've realized that I've begun to forget just how much I need Him. How much I need Him. The poverty which is blessed is the poverty of the Spirit. In this first beatitude, Jesus was talking about those who stand humbly before their God, crying out for His mercy, crying out for His love. In this context, the word poor literally means to beg. When was the last time that you and I begged for God? This verse is for those who know that if they don't have Jesus Christ, who don't have the presence of God in their lives, they're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. Pastor Brock, what's wrong with you this morning? I need Him. I need Him. I won't be able to be used this afternoon, this evening, and all week if I don't realize that I need Him. These verses, I think, demonstrate just how overwhelming it should be in the presence of God. You've heard this verse many times. Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Apostle John said in Revelation 1-7, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I thought of Psalmist David, King David. In Psalm 51, King David finally comes to his senses over his sin with Bathsheba. I believe one of the reasons he came back to God is he realized he no longer had that close, intimate, personal relationship with God, with the presence of God. And he couldn't stand it any longer. Oh, I can't help but perhaps think I'm talking to maybe one person today. It's been a long time since you have felt the presence of God. Since you've been so overwhelmed by the presence of God. Since you have come before Him and you realize that you're poor in spirit without Him. When's the last time that you've begged for the Spirit of God to come back in your life? You may be wanting me to go to chill Howie, Virginia after I'm done today. I don't know. Like a long lost friend, he craved and he longed for the presence of God. For without him, he was completely and utterly lost. That's why he said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not... Do not. Can you imagine the passion at which he said these words, perhaps in his chamber that day? He said, do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. With David's words and actions, he was displaying a poor spirit. Saying that I am nothing and I have nothing if I don't have you. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. I believe Jesus began with this. I believe He began with this beatitude for a reason. Because without it, not only can we not enter into the kingdom of heaven, but without this Spirit, there is no way, church, that you or I, there is no way that a believer can live out what Jesus is about ready to lay out to us. There's no way. It's too hard. Too difficult. If you haven't read it, then this week you read Matthew chapters 5-7, through and you tell me if you can do that in of your own strength and of your own power. There's no way you can do it. The only way that you can do it is if you die to self. If you continue to come to Him with a poor spirit. Before the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven can be established in our hearts, our human pride must be broken down. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the High and Lofty One who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high place and holy place. With Him, notice the capital. It's not a capital H. It's a little H. That's you and I. I dwell in the high and holy place with Him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God will bless those whose spirits cry out for His presence. Those who realize their utter and complete inadequacies in comparison to a holy God. But out of this will beg to see His power. And are desperate to live within His will. Oswald Chambers says the bedrock of Jesus Christ's kingdom is poverty, not possessions. A sense of absolute futility. Futility that says, I cannot begin to even do it. Then Jesus will say, blessed are you. I want to read a story about a man who needed this attitude. Mandy, I'll have you come up at this time. If you would please. And Joyce, I'm not sure what song you all have picked out. One of the most decisive moments in our lives is when we admit our need. That admission is what it took to turn Tracy Bailey around. Bailey writes in Guidepost in 1993 that he stood in the White House Rose Garden in the presence of the President of the United States to receive the National Teacher of the Year Award. He had come a long way. Some 15 years earlier, he had stood as a teenager in the presence of a county judge in an Indiana courtroom to be sentenced to jail. Bailey had gone on a drunken rampage with his friends, vandalizing a high school, had been caught and found guilty. Nevertheless, Bailey stood before the judge with his head held high, the words of his high school wrestling coach ringing in his ears, don't you ever hang your head, don't admit defeat, the minute you do, it's over. The judge looked at the proud teenager and stunned the courtroom with Bailey's sentence. Five years in the Indiana Youth Center, a prison one step below the state penitentiary. 
Tracy Bailey went to jail with his head still head high, held high, but it took only a few months for a reality to set in. One day as he sat in a solitary confinement in a cell with nothing more than a metal cot, a sink and a toilet, he realized what a mistake he had made. He began to weep. More importantly, he began to pray and he said, God, I need help. And he said, I'm defeated without you. That was the turning point for Tracy Bailey. He joined a prison Bible study and began taking college correspondence courses. After 14 months in jail, he was released on probation. And after further college studies, he became a science teacher in Florida. With these words, he summarizes the lesson that he had learned in life. I bowed my head and tasted victory. And I thought, that's it. Whether we're coming to Christ for the first time or we have a relationship with him, we need to be poor in spirit, humble, reminded of the song, Without him I could do nothing. Without him I'd surely fail. Without him I'd be drifting like a ship without a sail. Without him I would be dying. Without him I'd be enslaved and without him my life would be hopeless. But with Jesus, praise God, I'm saved. And the chorus goes, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, do you know him today? Please don't turn him away. Oh, Jesus, my Jesus, without him, how lost. I would be. This is what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a good thing, church, to have that beatitude. It's a good thing to realize, God, I am nothing, and I have nothing but myself to give. Would you bow your heads, please? I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord and you realize that you've really displayed an attitude that is not of a poor spirit. And maybe you don't think you're all that bad. You need to realize that there is nothing that you can do to earn the favor of God. There's nothing that you have that God wants other than your heart. Complete, utter helplessness without Jesus Christ. Or maybe you have accepted Him, but you've drifted from that mindset. You've drifted from begging God. Folks, I believe there are times in our life that we need to beg God. 
Beg God for his presence in our life. Beg him for more of who he is in our life. Beg him until we say stop because I can't take any more of it. Maybe there's some here this morning that you need to reestablish that poor in spirit. You need to realize that you have nothing without Jesus. Lord, thank you for reviving that in me. God, without you, without you, I'm nothing. Without you, I cannot be the man of God that I need to be. Without you, I cannot be the pastor that I need to be. And God, I'm not perfect. But I'm begging for you. Without you, I can't be used. Without you in my life, Spirit of God, you won't work. Without you, I can't be the husband that I need to be. I can't be the father that I need to be. Oh God, help me. Help us today to be poor in spirit. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that while this feels heavy, God, it's liberating. That when we give ourselves to you, when we allow our spirits to be given over to you, man, there is a joy, there is a freedom, there is a peace, there is a contentment that the world knows not of. And I thank you that we can have it this morning. Lord, if there is someone here that is heavy in heart, may they come before you this morning and just give you all of who they are. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.